Good evening, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. And you might want to check out our video on the truly horrifying incidents of the Charleston church shootings. It's important stuff to talk about. We want to do everything we can to try and do our best to make sure stuff like this never happens again. Is it possible? Probably not. Can we make steps towards it? Absolutely. And with your help at freedomainradio.com slash donate, we are aiming at just that. So let's move on with the show. Mike, who do we have? All right. Well, first today is Colin. Colin wrote in and said, my personal belief in this existence is that the human soul or consciousness is part of a higher dimensional source, which is the source of all energy in the world. And that when we die, we are simply reborn as another person slash intelligent being. I would like to know what Stefan thinks in both a literal and philosophical sense of the idea that all consciousness is one and the same, and that at the end it is where we return to when we die, and what sends us back to rebirth. That's from Colin. Colin, I think you've come to the right place. <laughs> Thank you. And I, I appreciate the question. Uh, is there anything you wanted to add to it? Uh, yeah, um, just quite quickly. Um, I miswrote something there. I said that um, this higher dimensional source I'm talking of is the source of all energy in the world. I meant the universe. Yeah. But yeah, um, I'm sorry, could you just uh, speak up a tad? <clears throat> sorry, sorry. Um, yeah, what I was saying is um, I said in the email I wrote to Michael that it's the source of all energy in the world, but I meant to say the universe. Um, but yeah, I'm really Oh, yeah, that's. Uh, that's not going to be the primary bone of contention between us, but I appreciate yeah. you <laughs> you clarifying that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so is there anything else you wanted to add to to your question? Should we should we dive in? Uh, let's just dive in. I'm happy to answer whatever questions you would have. When did you first come up with the idea of universal consciousness? Um, probably. Did it come to you in the form of a voice that's similar to, say, Sir Alec Guinness? No, I'm no. just kidding. But sorry, go ahead. Um, Growing up, um, I'll give you a little bit of my backstory. For the first um, maybe 5 to 13 years old, I attended a Presbyterian church, uh, Protestant, and I never really believed in the whole idea of God. I just sort of went with something to do on a Wednesday night, you know. Um, it was this like sort of club for, I'd say, about 5 to 18-year-olds, you know, get qualifications and stuff for it. Uh, about 13, I abandoned the faith that I never really held. But I always felt that human beings are connected in a way that, you know, animals really aren't. We have something special about us, and that's just something I believe. Right. And um, so, of course, you believe that you're inhabited by a spirit or a soul that is going to survive your physical death, right? Yes. Um, that right. belief, however, sorry, I'll come. I'll talk about more than that. That doesn't come from any sort of um, religious or philosophical idea. That's the <clears throat> understanding that in the world of physics, energy doesn't die, and the consciousness is a form of energy which cannot be destroyed. It cannot be created, and it makes sense to me that it's all one and the same. It just exists beyond our physical realm. Yeah, I mean, and so um, a, a star mm. can explode, and then the star matter is cast forth into the universe, where after untold eons, it may drift using gravitational attraction as it as it sort of conglomerates or aggregates. It can drift into creating another star, right? Is that 
yeah precisely sort of the idea okay okay um like uh um oil right which is a squished up old prehistoric tree trunks right uh, the tree trunks once uh, took their energy from the air and then you know millions of years later they're dug up and burned and then release energy back into the air so is it that kind of big cycle stuff right yeah rainwater right it, it evaporates uh, on the land and then it uh, aggregates in clouds goes out to sea rains into the sea uh, or whatever right they get this whole cycle of precipitation right yeah exactly well i mean the, 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 it certainly is true that scientifically true that the atoms that compose me uh, after i die will return uh, to the earth and uh, then a tree may grow over my bones and then somebody may eat a piece of fruit that has grown from the tree that has grown from my bones and some of my atoms may pass from my bones into the tree into the fruit into another person right yeah exactly um, well no okay but that okay but that's atoms yeah yeah that's yeah, not well, me understand, right understand that's not me yeah. um and in terms of what i'm talking about with the human consciousness it exists beyond you know our physical being it doesn't i wouldn't say i don't know how to describe it really um Part of this goes into no. You've described it. I mean, oh, yeah. sorry to interrupt, but I mean, you've described it well, mm. which is that you believe in an eternal essence to consciousness mm. that survives death and um, is part of, like a jigsaw puzzle piece, is is part of a larger consciousness or is united with all consciousness, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, is is the you know billions of consciousness uh, is around the world. Are they united in so far as if, like, we're all one six billionth of a puzzle, or is it like all human consciousness and then a deity as well? Oh no, no such thing as a deity. I just believe that there is some sort of source of energy. It's not at all intelligent. I just believe that you know the consciousness is part of a bigger thing and it's something that we probably won't ever understand. Okay, so I would like uh, if uh, since you believe that this is not this is not a personal belief of yours, like uh, it's I like red, right? Yeah. Uh, this is uh, for you a description of something that is empirically and universally true, mm. right? Yes. So, make the case. Okay. Well, um, part of uh, where this belief stems from uh, comes from string theory, actually. Um, in string theory, uh, the belief is that. There are nine dimensions, sorry, the theory is, there's nine dimensions to our universe, as well as a tenth dimension, which is time. <clears throat> um, a simple way to say it would be, the further you go through these dimensions, the more realities a person can perceive of. Uh, the way it works is, we are sitting in our dimension, uh, you know, we have our reality. If you were to go, say, to the fourth dimension, you'd be able to see some of the different paths that your life could take. You could experience them uh, all the way through to the ninth dimension, which is where every reality and every universe is possible and has happened. And it's important to remember that dimensions exist um, a bit differently from, the, from our universe. Like there could be many universes in one dimension and one dimension to permeate through each universe. It's, it's quite yeah, I don't. I don't. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just I interrupt you because 
this is just a lot of words to me, right? Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not. So, so as far as I understand it, and I, I'm no expert, of course, on this, but I remember reading, I, I dated a woman, uh, an engineering student oh. at a university, um, oh gosh, now, more than 30 years ago now, uh, and, um, oh, hang on, no, <laughs> more than 20 years ago, not quite that old. But, um, and I remember reading about string theory back then, and uh, it all seemed pretty cool and doobie-enabled, but... Um, as far as I understand it, um, there, there's two things that are important about string theory, just as there are about quantum physics. Uh, and particularly true with string theory is that string theory has not been, as far as I understand it, proven. Yeah. Uh, it, was not, it was not new 20 to 25 years ago, and 20 to 25 years further along, it has still not been proven. Uh, that's number one. Number two is that, like quantum physics, string theory in no way, shape, or form shows up in the realm of sense data, right? So it's a theoretical construct for understanding certain interactions of matter and energy, but it in no way aggregates to, um, to sense data, right? So and, and what I mean by that is there's freaky stuff that goes on at the atomic level according to quantum physics, but all of that cancels out long before you get to the level of sense data. Now, there is a philosophy of science, which, you know, is the scientific method and, and so on and, and is important for establishing standards by which we know the truth about matter and energy and the principles thereof. But when it comes to lived philosophy, when it comes to ethical decisions you're going to make in your life, when it comes to the stimulation of moral courage necessary for the advancement of the species from animal to uh, ubermensch, so to speak, the scientific theories have absolutely no relevance mm. whatsoever. I understand um, all that about string theory. I understand it's not proven. Um, a lot of and and it's had time, to... right? I mean, sorry, it's had time. I mean, within a couple of years of Einstein's theory coming out, it was done and dusted, as they say in England, right? I mean, light bent around stars, and uh, the, the time dilation effect was established, and uh, it's, it's proven. Mm. Now, they've had 30 years and more technology than any other physicist in history could dream of. They still haven't been able to nail this squid to the wall, right? Yeah. No, see, I mean, so I don't know. I don't know. You can found. Sorry to interrupt. I, I don't know if you can found a philosophical proposition about reality on a multi-decade, largely incomprehensible, unproven scientific theory. Well, um, what I'm talking about doesn't um, really... Uh, it's not bound to string theory. Um, that's just there's parts of string theory that. No, no, moving the goalpost, moving the goalpost. Ooga, <laughs> ooga. We are moving the goalpost, right? Because I asked you to make the case, and you started talking about string theory, and then I gave you a rebuttal, and then you moved the goalpost, right? No, I said your rebuttal. Um, there's just there's a bit more to what I'm talking about than just string theory. That's just you know one part of it, and in itself. Well, no, 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 but you don't, you, don't get to, you don't get to start off by talking about string theory. And then when string theory, at least I make a case against string theory, then change to something else, right? Because if your proposition about universal consciousness relies on string theory, and string theory proves to be relatively invalid in the realm of human action philosophy, then that's important. Because if, if you say, well... I don't know, like, the, I assume that you start with the majority of what your theory is based on, right? You start with the most important part. Now, if I try to disprove, let's just say I did disprove it just for the sake of convenience. I'm not saying I did, but 
So if you say, well, most of it is based on string theory, and then I disprove string theory and its relevance to human action philosophy, and then you say, well, it's not all about, you know, let's move on, let's like, but no, you can't do that, right? <laughs> I mean, that's that, because if the first part of what you bring up is disproven, you can't then say, well, it's not that important a part of it, because if it's not that important a part of it, why did you bring it up first? Well, I didn't um, claim it's not an important part of it. Um, I brought up first, um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not um, very well, it's quite late tonight and my head's not all um, screwed on properly. Um, I it's all right, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll give it a twist and turn and tug and see if we can <laughs> get it to the right place. But no, no, I accept what you're saying about string theory and accept that it's not proven and probably won't be proven. Um, I just think that there's parts of string theory as well as there's parts of other, you know, crazy theories about the creation of the universe that some of these things would hold true. Not all of them will. I believe there's a lot that we're never going to know in our lifetime. No, 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 no. No, string theory in no way establishes consciousness without matter. Right? There's no part of string theory, and I I don't even know much about string theory, but I can guarantee you this. (laughs) That there is no part of string theory that detaches consciousness from matter. Because, because matter, is, matter is an effect of consciousness in, in that there can be... I just did a podcast on this a while back. It hasn't been released yet, but it's going to come out. So I won't go into long, all the arguments here. But it would be like saying that string theory uh, creates a square circle. Or string theory has the effects of matter without the cause of matter. Like it has an effect of gravity without the cause of mass. And there's no valid part of a scientific theory that can violently contradict all sense data and rationality and empirical experimentation. And so you can't have an effect without a cause, and you cannot have consciousness without matter. So my concern, and I, I'm not accusing you of this, but just my concern about this mystical scientism that empiricists and rationalists like myself run into a lot which is, I have a, th- a thesis that is pretty outlandish. This is what people like you say. I have a thesis that is pretty outlandish. And when asked for proof, they go into the most arcane aspects of theoretical physics as if that somehow proves the case. What it's designed to do, like a squid spurting ink in the water, is just confuse people and say, well, I guess I don't really understand string theory, so maybe my consciousness can outlast my body. Right? But no, you can't use science to disprove this stuff. Give me a rational argument, because I guarantee you this as well. I guarantee you that you did not not believe in consciousness without matter and then get deeply versed in string theory and a scientist convinced you that there was consciousness without matter. I bet you had this belief emotionally and you're grabbing at scientism to try and find a way, not to prove it, but to baffle people into thinking that something has been established. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, do you mind if I just take like five minutes just to try and explain myself here? Um, I'm not Absolutely. going to say anything that will confuse people. It wasn't my intention to confuse people. Um, I didn't actually mean to start the string theory part. The reason I mentioned <laughs> string theory um, is... Nine dimensions is not confusing, really? Well, yeah, that's confusing, but, you know, I, I didn't okay. get into it. Um, like, I don't base what I think of on string theory. I, I'm trying to think of a way... To, it's something that I do believe in, and I can't tell you why I believe in it. I can't prove it. Um, then, then you can't believe it. That's the deal. I mean, you, you, if you're calling into a philosophy show, right, there are rules, right? I mean, you can't 
bring a bazooka to a chess tournament. I mean, you can, but then you're not playing chess anymore. <laughs> you're playing something else quite, quite a bit, right? Uh, and so when it, when it comes to your beliefs, if you say, well, I have this belief, but I can't really prove it, then you don't have the right to have the belief. Right? I mean, because then it's, it's bigotry. It's prejudice. Like if I say, um, you know, all, all Chinese people are thieves, and you say, well, what, what's, what's, that? what's the evidence for that? I say, well, I don't really have any evidence, but I just believe it. Well, everybody would recognize that that's a form of bigotry, right? And if you have a very strong and powerful and foundational belief, and, and what yours is is metaphysical, like it's right down in the basis of reality, right? You're not, it's not, we're not having a disagreement about the ethics of abortion or the death penalty. This is right down in the root of matter and energy. And if you have a metaphysical belief and you say, well, you know, I can't really play, uh, prove it or anything. Well, then, according to philosophy, you, you can't have that belief. I see, I see. And um, see, the thing is, I'm, I'm trying to think, it's because the, the subject I'm dealing with here is what happens to the human body, the brain, the consciousness, etc. after we die. And it's the question, is death really the end or are we just, you know, recycled into other humans? That's kind of what I'm getting at here. I know I didn't start off too well, but that's, you know, kind of what I'm getting at. The idea that we don't die and that there's a reason so, no, 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 we don't die. That we are reborn, but there's not any sort of, you know, God presence. It's power in this. It's just the recycling of our consciousness. It's something that I know it can't be. I know it can't be proven and I understand what you're saying. But I'd like to ask. Well, no, it, not only can it not be proven, it's easy to disprove. Really? I've... Because if we, if we have eternal consciousness, hmm. then I should be able to remember existence before I was born. Well, surely memory is tied to the brain, which is a physical object. Well, see, but but do I have do I have an identity without any memories? I think that as you sort of see people in the late stages of brain degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, the question of identity and its relationship to memory is um, questionable, to say the least. Right. So if you say, well, um, you know, you are going to be reborn. Well, am I going to be completely erased? I mean, is it sort of like saying, well, you get Bill Gates's computer, but it's going to be entirely reformatted with like 12th level <laughs> ninja, uh, ninja decryption or whatever it is, right? And how, how the heck you erase stuff like that. But, and then you say, well, then it's not really Bill Gates' computer. It's just a computer that he happened to touch once, but it's completely reformatted, right? And um, so if, if you're going to say that we have, we're going to be reborn and there's some part of us that survives but that part of us doesn't include any memories whatsoever, then I'm not really sure what you mean when you say, I could be reborn. Because if I'm reborn with no memory of having existed in the previous incarnation and no uh, memory of any time in between, and I'm starting from scratch completely, what on earth would it mean to say that I am reborn? It's like saying, well, there's a plastic cup, we melted it down, and we turned it into saran wrap. And therefore, the plastic cup has been reborn. It's like, no, it hasn't. It's now saran wrap, right? I understand, yeah. Perhaps a better way to word it would be to say that the consciousness that inhabits my body will one day inhabit another body. That mean but no memories, right? You're saying no memories of your existing life and no memories of any time in between these incarnations, right? Yeah. So you, you'll be completely reformatted and restart. And what... what how on earth is that different from simply dying? I mean, I mean, 
I'm not sure I actually know. Sorry, no, I mean, just, let me um, just say, and and no, and this and the, the and just I'm poking at this stuff just because I'm you know obviously I think that reason and evidence is important for healthy thinking. Yeah. So if I was reborn as um, um, I don't know a a leggy South Asian blonde woman, <laughs> right? <laughs> like I I get hit by a bus and tomorrow I wake up as a leggy South Asian blonde woman, um, and I have no memories of ever having been. Stefan Molyneux, host of Freedom Aid Radio. I have no memories of any time in between. I have no memories of previous incarnations. Well, how could you possibly say there's any continuity? Well, I mean, I'd say that would be assuming that the consciousness and your memories are tied together. I wouldn't say that they are. I'd say that our consciousness exists. Ugh, I'm, I'm sorry. It's just um, I had all this, you know, ready to go before the call and Oh no! I'm yeah. I'm 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 giving you really annoying questions, and and yeah. frankly, they're unanswerable. No, I'm, I'm glad right? you I mean, me them. Uh, Spot provoking. <laughs> yeah, that they're not answerable, mm-hmm. and I can also tell that this is dislodging nothing. Mm. And and what I find fascinating about that is that the beliefs are serving an emotional need within you, which is why um, you change and don't resi- like don't give up. The idea, and and my my question, which is to me much more fascinating than, am I going to get born again as a leggy, South Asian blonde woman, is, what do you think these emotional beliefs might be serving for you, emotionally? And, and another way of asking that is, let's say that you accept, what I'm saying, and say, well, no, I'm, I'm a mortal, carbon-based life form, and just like when you turn off the, radio, the voices don't go anywhere. When I die all of the biochemical and electrical energy that sustains my consciousness ceases and the body is there, but the consciousness is, uh, is gone. And if, if you were to accept that, how would you feel if that were true? If that were true, I'm not saying it is, but if it were true. Yeah. Um, see, I'm not sure how I could accept that. Um, I'd say maybe this belief is, stems from... See, it's hard because I'm now trying to get deep into my own psyche. And that's, um, yeah, no, I know, I know. It's okay because, I mean, you're a deep guy to begin with. These are deep beliefs, so I'm, I'm not asking you to do right, the impossible. Uh, I guess it's just, you know, the f- I don't want to think that, you know, what makes me, me. And I don't believe that my body makes me because my body isn't me. My brain contains all the information that makes me, me. It just powers this meat suit you know along the road i just uh i just don't want to think that death is really the end for anyone at all but uh, why why don't you want to think that i get that you that's what i just said you don't want to think that but why uh it just i'd say one of the most simplest reasons is it just doesn't Makes sense to me that death would be the no, end. No, 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 no. I know, I know. That's I know not, you... we're talk, it's an emotional. It's an emotional thing because your belief makes no sense, which we've just been talking about. And and I, I don't mean that you don't make any sense. I mean just this particular belief. Yeah, doesn't make any sense. I mean, the moment you're kicking in ten dimensions, you've got a question. Hmm. You know, just based on Occam's razor about whether what you're saying is basically sensible. Yes, of course. And um, so. So forget that doesn't make any sense. There's an emotional reason why. And, and please understand, I'm not saying this emotional reason in order to disprove your argument or to prove mine. I'm just genuinely, humanly, deeply curious about the motivation for this. 
Oh, don't worry. Um, I mean, I've been watching your show for a while, so I understand that these are the sort of questions you ask, and they can really get to the bottom of a person through them. Um, I, I'm not too sure what the emotional connection could be. Um, I mean, people, many people in my life have passed away. Uh, it could be, I just don't want to think that they're really gone. Did you have closure with these people? Did you love them? Did you have uh, a connection with them? Did you follow them into the uh, sinkhole of death? Did you hold them as they faded? Did you have the connection with them as they went? Uh, the two, um, sorry, it's a bit hard to talk about this, poo-poo. Uh, getting a bit emotional. <laughs> no problem with the emotions. <laughs> the, the last two people I lost um, was my mother when I was 16. Um, about six months. Is that ago. when you gave up your faith? Uh, no, I gave up my faith at thirteen. But I didn't. I didn't 30, really sorry. hold the faith to begin with. I just, you know, went to this church because my mother encouraged me to do it. But I was never really. So your mother held the faith. Your mother held the faith, and um, uh, and then she died when you were sixteen. No, she didn't really hold the faith at all. I think she, she was just, you know, she wasn't. She didn't believe in um, religion. I think she believed in God. Um, she wasn't really open about, you know... Wait, you think? Hang on, hang on, hang on. I mean, you knew the woman for 16 years. Yeah, yeah. She sent you to church, and you don't know whether she believed in God? Well, the thing is, she never went to church. She never, you know, prayed. She's never spoke about God, you know. She, but think, she sent you to church. I think the only reason she sent me to church is... It wasn't church. Um, it's this organization called the Boys Brigades. It's kind of religious in the fact that you know, they make you pray and, um, you know. Oh, like Boy Scouts. Like I went to yeah, Boy, Scouts yeah, like Boy Scouts when I was younger for years. So it's like Boy Scouts. It has sort of a, um, well, at least in England, it has this kind of, uh, um, you know, a God as, as so far as God serves the needs of empire. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's a, a, good, a good white explorer in the David Livingston style. Um, so there was God in it, but it's, you know, it wasn't necessarily yeah. religious in any fundamental way. Okay. Okay. Um, and of course, and the next person that um, I lost, the major person. No, no, hang on. Hang Sorry. On. Okay. We, we never do mom in five minutes. <laughs> never do mom. <laughs> um, this is MILF, Mother's I Love to Philosophize. It's PH at the end, though, just in case yeah. you're going to screw up your internet searches. Oh, don't worry. Um, so you didn't know if your mother believed in uh, a deity or not? No. And. Would you say that, I mean, that seems like a pretty important thing to know about your mom. Is that indicative of not being close to her? Or uh, No, I was always close to my mom. Um, you know, the whole idea of religion has never really been a part of my family at all. Like, you know, we're sort of more down-to-earth people. You know, it's all about the love between human beings and actually just doing good things for the fact that doing good things are good rather than doing good things and the worry that you burn the pit of fire for alternative. But no, religion was never part of this household, ever. All right, so when you lost your faith at 13, if you were close to your mother, I assume you had a lot of conversations with your mother about this. See, um, it's hard to actually recollect um, events um, in my childhood. Um, no, no, no. No, I'm, I'm no, no, no. Listen, come on, come on, man. Unless you've actually had a railway spike through the neofrontal cortex, uh, you would remember a conversation about losing faith. 
with your mother. You, this is not something you would forget. Well, I mean, I, that would be a powerful conversation to have, right? I, as I, I said um, a couple of times now, um, I don't think I said it loud enough. Um, I didn't really have the faith. I just went because I was encouraged to. Um, this organization, Boys Brigade, um, upon completing the entire course, uh, you get something called like your uh, Queen's Award or something like that. It's you know, it's just a good thing to have on your CV. But I never really went for the God thing. I never believed in God. No, no, we're back. We're, you told me that you had some religious beliefs when you were younger, and then you lost your faith when you were about 13, right? When I say religious beliefs, I believe there was a God. Look, I, I get that. I get that. I'm not trying to say that you went from altar boy to, like, demon seed worshiper or something like yeah. that. But what I'm saying is that you had some relative shift in your belief systems. Mm. And my question is, if you were close to your mother— wouldn't you have conversations about that? Now, if you don't recall having conversations about that, I'm not saying it was like some mind-bending huge change in your life, but it's not insignificant, right? It's not like you switched allegiances from one football team to another. Actually, that probably would be pretty significant in a lot of the British Isles. But I'm asking because you say that you're close to your mother, you don't know about her religious beliefs, and you don't seem to have had conversations about your, any alterations in your religious worldview. See, um, no, I, I don't. I don't imagine I did have a conversation with her because it wasn't really, you know, a change in my life. You know, I really just went from believing in a god to then thinking, well, there's probably not a god. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm completely atheist. I mean, ninety nine percent atheist, one percent agnostic, because. As we said earlier, no one knows what happens after you die. All right, listen, I'm gonna, I gotta interrupt you. I gotta interrupt you. I know you're tired and all that, but I'm, I'm getting kind of frustrated here because oh. I just feel like we're doing this big giant dance and not getting to the heart of the issue. Because every time I, I make a claim or, or point out something that's an inconsistency, you go into like waffle burger mode and we can't have any kind of connection. And the emotional connection that we had earlier when you were getting worked up uh, about something is you just seem to be basically pissing on that fire because it is not insignificant when you lose a belief in a deity. That is not an insignificant event. Mm. Because you brought it up originally as a fairly significant event. And then I say, well, did you talk about it with your mother? And now suddenly it's become an insignificant event. Now, it's very clear to me that you're changing your story because if it was a significant event and you didn't talk about it with your mother, maybe you weren't as close as you think. That's all. Or maybe there's another definition of closeness that I'm not understanding, right? In which case, explain it to me. How are you close to your mother when you didn't know if she believed in a deity and you didn't tell her about your loss of belief in a deity? Maybe there's, and I'm not saying that's the only conversation that would ever make you close, but that's just all we've talked about. See, um, it's just I can't actually, honestly, I can't recall having a conversation with her about losing my faith. I just, you know, uh, can you think of other important conversations about milestones in your intellectual or emotional life that you've had with your mother or you had with your mother? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, <clears throat> is there anything specific you want to know? Like, no, just give me the one that you would consider to be the most significant conversation you had with your mother. Just an outline. We don't have to get into all the details. I'm just kind of curious because you, you define something as close, and I'm not going to disagree with you. I just want to understand what you mean by close. Um... See, now it's, it's just my brain's gone a thousand thoughts a minute now trying to think of things. Right, and that's a problem. Uh, Mike, are you, uh, are, you on, are you on the air? I am. 
Okay, Mike, um, I'm just, I don't mean to interrupt this conversation, but, and we don't have to get into any particular details, but if somebody said to you, Mike, have you ever had conversations with Steph about anything significant or important? Uh, what would you say? Yes. And I would have 20 million examples probably off the top of my head without even thinking. We just, we did, we had one today. We had mm-hmm. one two days ago. I mean, we talk a lot. If somebody would say to me, well, have you, you know, I say, oh, I'm very close to my wife. And people would say, well, you know, what are important conversations we've had with your wife? I'm like, well, sit down and let me open volume one of two million, right? And we've been involved in a significantly deep conversation since the day we met. That was our first date. And <laughs> hopefully that will be our last one too uh, at, at someone's deathbed. So, um, and and the reason uh, why this is important, and, and Mike, can you think of conversations, can you think of relationships where you have that kind of connection where this would be a tough question? Not relationships I have currently, certainly relationships I had in the past. Well, no, but relationships that you would call close. Where there, I couldn't come up with a close connected With examples of any close conversations, yeah. Nothing that I'd describe as close. And again, I'm not trying to say you weren't close with your mother. Like, I'm not trying to say that at all. But I'm an empiricist, right? And when people say stuff, I always ask for evidence, right? Like you said... I believe in this consciousness, and I said, we'll make the case, right? And we've been talking about that. And the reason that I'm not trying to sort of rip apart your heart from your memory of your mother, like pulling apart two sets of Velcro or anything like that, but I think there could be very important emotional reasons why this belief in eternal recurrence might serve you. Now, I think serve you in the short run, but cost you in the long run, and that's why we're talking about this. At least that's why I think it's important to talk about. Um, yeah. Um, sorry, I wasn't able to answer your question. Or, um, it's just no, 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 don't no, no, apologize. We're just talking. It's just you know, it's an emotional subject. Um, it is. It is. It is. And I, I want to be sensitive to that. And again, I, I am sensitive that I'm, you know, poking around with a sharp stick in a in a volcano. So I'm, Colin. I'm not trying to be disrespectful to you or your relationship with your mom. I don't think you are. Don't worry. <laughs> But um, it's, um, when you asked if she believed in a god, um, she never actually outright told me she did. Um, she did believe in heaven. She did believe in heaven, mm-hmm. but she never, you know, she never went to church. She never prayed. She never acted like a religious person. She just believed that good people went to heaven, bad people went to hell. <sighs> Sorry. No, no, don't apologize. I mean, but tell me, why do you feel strongly about this? I'm in no way saying you shouldn't, right? I'm just, I want to make sure I understand where you're coming from, uh, what emotion is, is coming up for you here. Well, um, I mean, as I said, I don't believe in God or anything like that. And I guess I just don't want to think that she's, you know, completely gone. Okay, but why? Um. I'm not saying you should rejoice that she's gone, right? I'm not saying, like, do a dance or anything like that. But my question is, why is it so painful for you to think that she's just gone and gone and gone and you shall never meet again? There's, like, so many reasons. I mean, like, she's, you know, we only get one mother, I suppose. Um, she's, she was a really important part of my life growing up and, you know, yeah. Uh, Letting go is probably the hardest thing I could ever do. I mean, it's been five right. years now, and 
it just it seems to me as if since you know the day that happened, my life's just stood still, and I just don't know how to start again. I suppose the idea that we never really die just brings some sort of comfort. Yes, yes, but I think it comes at a cost. I think it comes at a cost. You know, they, they, there's a statement, which I, I think is, is a useful starting point for discussion. I don't know if it's the be-all and end-all. And it says that all mental dysfunction arises from the avoidance of legitimate suffering. Yeah, I understand that. And I wonder if when you are, and look, I mean, 16, that's a terrible time to lose a parent. I, uh, I have a friend I grew up with who was 16 when his mother died after a both terribly and mercifully short battle with cancer. And um, it was a brutal experience. And he tried to uh, tough it out and diffuse it. And I don't know that I ever really saw him grieve. And I, I think it cost him. I really do. And I'm not trying to, you know, transpose him onto you. And, you know, I'm really trying to be aware of that. But you said, Colin, that your life is a little stuck since your mother died five years ago. And I wonder if there is this grieving within you but you kind of drag it down with this, with these theories of eternal recurrence. Like you say, oh, I miss her so much. Uh, it was so terrible that she died. She's my only mother. And the grief begins to overwhelm you. And then you kind of beat it back with these ghosts of we'll meet again, right? I understand, yeah. I think that's probably a good way to say why this has all happened. Why I think the way that I do, sorry. Um, so then my question is, my question is, what was your modeling in terms of handling grief when you were growing up? In other words, everybody has grief, everybody has sorrow, everybody has troubles. I do, you do, everybody does. And how was sadness or grieving or loss, how was that modeled for you? When you were growing up, and not just in terms of how people dealt with your griefs and loss, yeah, but how did you see other people, in particular adults, deal with grief and loss? Um, I was quite um, a reclusive child. I didn't um, have much, many friends, or go out very often. The only adult connection I really had was um, my parents, and you know, uh, so. Death was a bit of a strange um, thing to experience in that way, because I hadn't really experienced it before. Um, I'm sorry, you didn't say you didn't have pets or anything like that. that no, I had I had one pet, but um, I, that was a cat I got when I was two, and she didn't die until I was twenty. So, all oh, right, okay, yeah, that was only a couple of years ago. Right. Um, so no, I, I didn't really experience heavy loss or grief before this. Uh, the most I did experience was. When I was seven years old, um, my great-granddad uh, passed away. Um, but, I mean, at seven years old, um, I didn't understand what that meant at the time. It wasn't actually until 
10 years, no, seven years later that I think I first cried about that. Ah, okay, 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 okay. All right, so now we're probably close to the center of things. So you were seven when your great-grandfather died, and it wasn't until you were 14 that you cried about it? Yeah, 15. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. It was like... Uh, it was seven, eight years. I can't really remember. Um, yeah, it's fine. It doesn't matter with you. So, why did it take you that long to cry about the death of your great-grandfather? Not that there's anything wrong with you. I don't, I, I'm not trying to imply that. Like, you cold-hearted bastard. How long does it take for your heart to thaw when someone you love dies? I'm not talking about... Why do you think it took you that long? Um, when I got told about it, um, I remember... I actually quite remember perfectly how it happened Um I just woke up one morning and uh, my dad came in to tell me that my great granddad passed away the night. But you know, at seven years old, you know, what I said was, uh, "Oh, okay." And then I went to play my computer games and stuff. You know. Uh, oh, wait, 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 wait. See, you're putting the onus upon yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. But you would take your emotional cues from your father mm-hmm. or from your parents, right? Mm-hmm. So my question is, how were your parents? At this death, with regards to this death, um, it's from my memory, and I could be wrong because it was such, you know, at seven years old. Um, I can't remember them ever really being visibly upset. And if they were right. upset, they didn't show it in front of me either. I guarantee you, I can guarantee you, Colin, that they were not upset and never showed it to you. Because otherwise, you in no way, shape, or form would have gone back to your computer game. Mm. Right? And what's interesting is. And I was really, you know, as usual, relentlessly obnoxious. But um, when I asked if you'd had a conversation with your mom about the change in your religious beliefs, you kind of fogged out. And I said, well, when things are really important, we really remember them very clearly. And you remember very clearly, as you said, when you were seven and your father came in and said, your great grandfather is dead. And you kind of went, well, OK, and went back to your computer game. Mm-hmm. That was an important moment, right? Because that was how your relationship and it may not have been the first time, but it's certainly the one that's most clear in your mind. How is your relationship to grief? Did your father come in and say, you know, we're really sad about it. This is a big moment. This is your first exposure to, to death. Um, and uh, let's, let's talk about it. This is, this is important. I've got a lot to say. I want to share some of my memories of the man. I'd like to ask you your memories of the man. You know, we've got a funeral to go to. Is there anything you'd like to write? Uh, and he might tear up. He might cry because he's sad. And this would be a very important conversation to have with a child about loss. Mm-hmm. Um, he told me, you know, he's, he told, my dad's told me plenty of things about my great-granddad, you know, the stuff he did. Um, he was in the war, World War II, um, you know, a lot of stuff he did, what he did for a living, blah, blah, blah. But no, he never really had a conversation with me about death you know, at this point. I think... See, you see, now this is, the, this is the word that you said, like, I never really, I never had too many friends, or he never really had a conversation mm-hmm. with me about death. And I never really know. Okay, I'm kind of just reset. Like, no, and the reason, and because did, did he or didn't he, right? Because no, he said, no, we never really had a conversation. Okay, because uh, that, that's the kind of clarity that I need, right? And when you say you didn't have too many friends, do you mean you didn't have 20 friends, or five friends, or two friends, or any friends? Because uh, I don't have 20 friends, yeah. <laughs> but I wouldn't say, right? Um, okay, now I'm sorry if I'm the, that's just part of the way I speak. It's you know I know it's very bad. It's a bad habit to have. It's just that's how people around me speak, and that's just how I 
Yeah, no, and I'm just trying to get clarity on that because uh, uh, I don't know what too many friends means. I don't know that you never really had a conversation about death. I don't know what that means. But if you did, it sounds to me like you didn't because that would have been a good time to have a conversation about death, right? Mm-hmm. No, I've never had a conversation about death, no. Right. Right. Okay, so the first time that you encountered death, it was brushed off. And you know what? You know what's funny? This word just struck, just popped into my head, Colin, mm-hmm. and I think it's important. Do you know what the wonderful thing is about the word immaterial? No. Is that it has two meanings? Maybe it has more than two, but the two that are relevant to this conversation is that immaterial means both non-matter, non-material, and it also means unimportant. Yeah. And it's interesting that your ideas about death start from immateriality. It's immaterial that your grandfather died, your great-grandfather died, nobody talks about it, it doesn't really matter, you go back to, it's immaterial. And then yeah, and you end up with a theory about death that is immaterial. It's not material. It's not matter, right? It's yeah. The soul. So, did you, you, you never saw your parents grieve and they never helped you with any grief that you might have? No. Um, the first time I ever seen either of my parents grieve was my dad on, you know, after my mum passed away. Uh, yeah, that's the most grief I've experienced from my parents. Uh, yeah. And was your, I don't want any details, but was your mother's death sudden or slow? Uh, sudden. Sudden, okay. And were there any other um, deaths or losses or things to grieve over? Between seven and sixteen, no, not at all. No troubles in the family. Nothing to be sad over. Uh, oh, in right, eight sorry, years. Um, yeah, um, seriously. Sorry, I, I want to live in your world. I was Take thinking me to this no, tenth dimension. It sounds the, lovely. Sorry, Stefan. I was thinking more along the lines of death there rather than just general grievances. Um, I mean, like I was bullied for a long time. If that could uh, count as a grievance, I suppose it does. You were bullied. What do you uh, mean? What happened? Well, started very early. Um, at age of three, because at the time both my parents were working, um, like just to support me. Like you know, that's why they both had to work. Um, so I had to go to uh, this playgroup thing for. Wait, hang, like, on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang <laughs> on. I'm sorry to start you off right at the beginning. Stop you right at the beginning of your story. Yeah. But why? Uh, why did they both have to work to support you? Uh, well. The economy in Britain wasn't really uh, too good. Um, my dad's job didn't pay very much, and neither did my mother's. And you know, they still had to get their own house because at the time, my dad and mum were still living with her sister because they were still quite young, about twenty-one, twenty-two when I was born. Um, no, twenty-three. Sorry, yeah, twenty-two and twenty-three. Uh, they still lived with her sister, so they just needed the money to actually get a house that I could grow up in and have a childhood, really. Um, so they wanted their own house mm. and therefore they, um, they both had to work, right? Well, um, my dad was the first person to get a job. Uh, my mother took after me mostly herself until I was about three years old, uh, which is when I was old enough to go to a sort of daycare thing. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, so your mum, your mum did stay home for the first couple of years? Yeah, until I was old enough to go to okay. daycare, and then she got a job that would, you know, take her from the morning to the afternoon so that I could spend daycare. And that's when the bullying started. Uh, the, the, the one occasion of it, the 
most um, sticks out in my mind was, I remember there was a book corner uh, with lots of pills and stuff. I was reading the book and three kids came over and was smothered by, by pills by these uh, groups of kids and passed out. And the staff at the daycare ruled it out as they were just plain. And it's like, you know, I nearly died. <laughs> I briefly lost consciousness due to asphyxiation. And, you know, it's and not, how did they how did they choke you? Were they uh, like kneeling on top of you, hands around the throat? I mean, uh, two of them held me down, and another one put a pillow over my face, and then sat on the pillow. And how old were you? Three years old. How old were the boys? At the same age. Wow! So you had some pretty creepy kids in your daycare. Yeah, and these are the same kids that um, I spent, you know, the next. Yeah, school school time through, with um, uh, in total to cut the cut down short, the bullying lasted from the age of three till about thirteen. Wow, and how how what forms did it take, Colin? Uh, mostly just physical violence, uh, stealing my things. Uh, I, I moved school uh, because the bullying got that bad um, at the point. Um, in the school, uh, I was in primary three at the time. I was about eight years old, and the people that were bullying me were eleven and twelve. <laughs> you know, and I'm I'm an eight-year-old boy with ten, eleven and twelve-year-olds literally kicking into me on the ground. And my parents went to the school so many times, and they always said, "We'll deal with it if it happens again," and they never dealt with it. <laughs> no, government schools have no incentive to deal with. With bullying, and I know the age disparity is, I mean, when I was 11 or 12 years old, I was going through the woods with a friend and a 17, 16 and 17 year old boys uh, sat upon us and, and sort of trapped us there for a couple of hours, made us build them a fire and, and threatened us. And uh, I just, I got so, I was so disgusted with them. Um, and I was unwise, I mean, obviously, but I just couldn't resist. And I just said, man, I mean, you're like, you're like twice their size. Why don't you, why you guys are so brave? Why don't you pick on someone your own size? Which got me a, a very good punch to the stomach, which uh, in hindsight I think was still worth it because I was glad to have got it out. And, uh, and yeah, they went to my school. And, you know, on Monday they're like, hey, how was your weekend, Steph? You know, I mean, that kind of stuff. And um, it is, uh, yeah, this, this age disparity, uh, bullying is, is so contemptible and so vicious and so pathetic. You know, the, the only thing that's satisfying is seeing how these fucking bullies do later on in life, you know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you had your afternoon of fun. How have your 20s been? Like, one of the bullies in my school um, was, uh, uh, is, is, is now dead from drug and alcohol abuse. And, uh, you know, the, the, the arc of the universe is long, but it generally bends towards justice. <laughs> so, but that doesn't help you when you're 8 or 12 or whatever, right? Um, I'm trying to think what else I could say now. Um, no, um, I mean, the bullying ended at 13, uh, for quite a specific moment I can remember as well. Um, I was in the playground, it was, this was in, you know, a secondary school, academy, whatever you call it in Canada. Uh, um, and this one boy who's like, who's fairly new to the school, uh, came out with a football shoe, you know, with the studs in the bottom and smacked me across the face with it and cut up on my face. And, I've Sorry, just, what did he cut your face with? Um, a football shoe. Uh, I don't know what you call it. Oh, the, but the soccer, cleats, right? Soccer boot, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I just 
lost it. And at the time, I was studying, mar- uh, not studying, I was practicing martial arts. Um, and I just kicked him straight in the face, just, you know, from standing there. And he went down screaming and crying. And I didn't really get any bother after that at all. Um, but then there was other problems stemming on later on in life in different places. What are the other problems? Well, I mean, like, not other problems, similar problems, just in different parts of my life. Um, like, school bullying stopped, so in school, you know, I was fine, but I didn't really feel safe in my own town uh, because, well, I'm, I'm a guy with long hair who listens to metal, and in Scotland, there's a lot more people who hate people who listen to metal and have long hair than people who have long hair and listen to metal. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No, I mean, um, a, a culture that where, where skirts for a living really <laughs> has a trouble with, with long hair. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you've you got to keep your priorities. No question. You've got to be manly uh, in skirts. So I get it. Um, uh, we, we call them neds over here, uh, non-educated delinquents or chavs, um, if you've heard that word before. Just general idiotic, violent, uh, disruptive people. You know. Yeah, I think in England at least we we call them yobs or or we call them bava yeah. boys. Yeah, or Boston boys after a um, juvenile delinquency uh, place. But that's, that's uh, and yeah, no, there's a dangerous tribe. It's a dangerous tribe. You know, I, I was reading the other day about how little effect parenting has on a child's personality, and uh, everyone's like, well, I guess that means uh, upbringing doesn't matter. It's like, well, you. You put kids all in the same public school where everybody's emotional defenses devolve down to the lowest sociopathic common denominator. Of course, you're going to find that peers have more influence than parents, you know? Yeah. It's like putting guys in prison and saying, well, you know, their, their, their prison mate, their prison bunk mate has a lot more influence on their behavior than a childhood friend. I guess childhood friends don't matter. It's like, well, no, but you put people in prison and you put kids in school prisons and, of course, they're going to have a lot of peer influences because – it's a very dangerous and, and tricky environment where explosions of violence or, as you found out at the age of three, near-death experiences, explosions of violence and near-death experiences can occur out of the blue. Mm. I had a friend of mine who later died in a tragic motorcycle accident uh, got into, especially like around grade seven, where physical divergencies are so huge. Like some kids have yet to hit puberty and like all the Italian guys were like shaving the backs of their hands because they were starting to look like Sasquatches. And they, they sometimes could be like a, they could be, be like a size and a half of one of the smaller kids. And uh, yeah, one of the biggest kid in school um, you know, was, took offense to something that he said. There was going to be a fight. Everybody spread the word. And like there's this literal Roman base animalistic chimpanzee eat your liver out bloodlust that goes running through these schools. Like Lord of the Flies is not believable because in Lord of the Flies, the novel by William Golding, it takes weeks or months for them to devolve into a primitive state. That's ridiculous. Just rumor of a fight. And no one's sitting there and saying, fight. Are you kidding me? That's ridiculous. Why? It's like, fight, fight, fight. You know? Uh, and, uh, you know, he went out there. And, I mean, my God, that this, you, you can get, like, incredibly badly hurt from these things. Uh, even if nobody's really intending to. You know, one finger goes into your eyeball. You know? Um, uh, one elbow goes into your throat. I mean, y- you can really, really be hurt. And um, it can be uh, it can be incredibly uh, destructive, and uh, it's a very very dangerous environment. There's no referees, uh, there's no timeouts, there are no safe words. It's just kids wailing on each other, 
with um, wildly different skill sets and physical sizes. Uh, it's a it's incredibly dangerous and primitive environment. And uh, just you you know this yourself, right? I mean, you're an intelligent, sensitive guy with some mildly off the beaten path perspectives and tastes, and suddenly it's like you know six million bully lasers are trained on your forehead. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, that was always the quiet child in school who studied, who actually did his schoolwork and liked to read books. So I was sort of easy pickings <laughs> in a public school. Yeah, no, I mean, for me, it was just work out, get a haircut, get better clothes. As soon as your sexual market value goes up, the bullying tends to stop. But the sexual market value where it's low is uh, a teenager. I'm not saying at age, right? But sexual market value or hierarchy value. Uh, you know, I started working out. I, I, I started being more public about my sports. People found out that I went to disco starting when I was sort of 15 and 16, would go dancing and, and all that. And so I, my cool factor went way up and uh, uh, I was a very attractive young man and, and athletic and, and all that. And so that, that changed. I was never hugely bullied, but I definitely was the, the new kid and I spent a lot of time in the computer lab uh, and there were a few incidents of, of bullying but uh, I remember I was in, I've mentioned this story in the show before, I was, in, I was in a bowling alley playing Defender. Yeah, yeah, there's a little time bubble. And uh, I was doing really well. Some other kid wanted to play and he unplugged the machine. And I called him a jerk for unplugging the machine. And anyway, I guess he took great offense at this. And then he told his older brother, who was a known bully, that I'd, you know, pushed him and, and called him horrible names. And this guy, you know, you're dead, man. You know, and I was like scared. I mean, this guy like, was like two heads taller than me. And uh, had really, you know, you can tell these these cold eyes of uh, infinite stillness and infinite volatility. Right, this chilling combination. No empathy, incredible emotional hyperreactivity, and um, I just I just avoided the guy. I mean, I couldn't couldn't possibly fight him. Not, I've never been in a fight in my life, but um, I couldn't possibly fight him. Uh, and you know, in in Canada, the healthcare is quote, free, which means, like me, you got to go to another country to get it. But um, now with airline overhead. But um, the dental work is not free. And, of course, you know, it's a big problem. And you get a tooth knocked out when you're 15. I mean, they're your adult teeth. And, uh, you know, welcome to three grand worth of dentistry uh, and problems perhaps for the rest of your life. Like I remember a photographer got punched out by Marlon Brando. And the guy had to have like 10 visits to the dentist. They never got his teeth back in quite right. He was in constant pain. And this is the kind of shit that can happen from one stupid incident. You get pushed down a set of stairs. Yeah. And, you know, you, 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 your nose bridge can break and go into your brain. And like, holy crap. I mean, you can have some really, really bad stuff, like lifelong pain. So Dr. Phil the other day where a woman was saying that her... You know, her mother was like, oh, I don't know why she doesn't call. She hasn't called for seven years. I mean, all I did was hang up on her or she hung up on me. I don't know what the problem was. And it turns out that the mother was, you know, drug addict and, and a, a serial dater of men, let's say, and incredibly violent. And it beaten this girl up so badly that 20 years later, she still had migraines and she had partial loss of hearing in one ear. She had a bad back uh, from, from just one beating. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, the lifelong, I've just, I've been aware of this when I was a kid, like the, cause I saw when I was a kid, um, one kid, uh, went into the pool wrong, was underwater too long and had brain damage for the rest of his life. Like he was done. And, um, this kind of stuff where one accident, one incident can just mess you up. 
uh, and uh, that's that's rough stuff. So you probably had, you know, the kind of intelligence and foresight. If you're going to listen to this show, the intelligence and foresight to recognize that it is really dangerous to get involved in physical altercations. You know, it ain't Fight Club. You know, it's uh, it, 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 you can spend the rest of your life saying, well, that was a really stupid way to pretend I had courage. I'd say um, I actually feel quite lucky, you know, when you tell me the stories of what's happened to people, you know, um, when I think about probably the worst pain or sorry, the worst blow I ever took in a fight. Um, I was 13. Yeah, 13. Um, and, you know, this is when the bullying was still going on. Uh, one boy tackled me to the ground uh, and then another kicked me square in the head um, in the temple so hard that my vision turned green. Like everything was green. Yeah. Wow. Everything I looked at had this green, uh, what's the word? Like just a green flare to it. A uh, green hue kind of thing or flare. Yeah, like a green hue. Like everything was just a bit wow. more green and then it just disappeared after about 10 seconds. But, you know, it's just thinking about that. That could have caused so much more damage than what it could have possibly, what probably has. Cause a kick to the temple is never good for the brain. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. you don't know something like that. Um, also, you don't know. I mean, not that it's going to be the case with you, but, you know, you take a couple of shots at the head and you don't know what's going to happen in your 30s and 40s. You know, you see what happens with these NFL players and it's like, Ee! no, exactly. That's some uh, messy stuff, right? It can be a long way down the road that the chickens come home to roost to a rather empty nest. So yeah. that's why I'm fine. Right. OK. So you had a lot of of grief and your family had a lot of suffering and troubles because of this bullying, right? Yeah. And how did, uh, w w were you given any emotional skills or were you, um, how, how were you helped to handle this? Uh, I was helped to handle this. Um, after the bullying, uh, after I moved school for the first time, I only ever moved school twice, um, my mother put me into mixed martial arts. Um, I did that until I was about 14 from yeah, from eight to fourteen, and then I discovered the social life because <laughs> you know the martial arts took up my entire weekend, which was the only day I'd have to hang out with the friends I now had. I said earlier I didn't have any friends. I didn't actually make my first friend until I was twelve, and I didn't actually have a group of friends until I was fifteen, which is when I stopped the martial arts and started hanging out with people. Wait, 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 wait! Are you saying you didn't make any friends through martial arts? Well, most of the people at martial arts. Um, were a lot older than me. So, yeah. <laughs> like, um, I was, I think the next youngest person after me was five years older than me. Right, right, okay. Yeah. Okay. Did martial arts help with the bullying? Um, it helped me defend myself when I got bullied. Uh, I was always, you know, too scared to actually throw a punch back, but I was quite capable of blocking punches and dodging punches. So it helped in that aspect. Yeah, because you, you don't know if someone's just going to erupt, right? I mean, you throw a punch back. You don't know if somebody's just literally, like, it's got some ex incredibly explosive bomb deep down in their amygdala and fight or flight mechanism, and it's just yeah. going to blow the shit up and try and kill you, right? No, exactly, yeah. Or or it's going to climb into your window with a machete. Like, you just, anyway. Okay, so um, family had a lot of sadness, a lot of tragedy, and... Um, have you had any um, 
Have you had any work or any help with, with, with grieving that incredibly lengthy period? You're talking like 12 years, right? 13 to 15 at least. Mm, yeah. Um, I was, uh, the only really help I really saw was uh, counselling through the school. Um, but that wasn't really like fully my choice. It was suggested to me because I was diagnosed with depression at 15 and I actually put onto a course of Prozac, uh, which in the UK, I'm not sure it works in American Canada, but Prozac's only meant for 18 year olds and up. And I was given them at 15 because I was told you need them. <laughs> Yeah, because, I mean, the idea that school could be fixed is incomprehensible. I mean, just yeah, exactly. drug the children, right? I mean, you, you can't no, can't fix the school, right? You can just drug the children. And I'm incredibly sorry that that was your experience. And I'm certainly no fan of that stuff, though no. my positions on it are all basically amateurish. But um, all right. So you had a lot of grief. You had a lot of grief. And uh, do you feel, how do you feel your parents handled the, the bullying as a whole? Um, see, it's hard to think of how they handled it. I know it distraught them greatly. Um, uh, my dad, at the time, I didn't really get a chance to see how he felt because he had to work a really like bad, not a bad job, but a long hours job. Um, he left the house at five, half five in the morning and wasn't home until ten at night. You know, working in a nuclear power plant, uh, so I didn't really get to see him for a lot. Wait, hang on a sec, hang on a sec. Can you work that long? I uh, thought you had some sort of like a nuclear power plant. I imagine they're quite keen on people who aren't overtired, right? They actually provide rooms so that people can go for a sleep during work. Yeah, so they do have that option. So I mean, but that's a huge amount of overtime, right? He yeah. gets to work at six. He leaves work at nine p.m. I'm, That's I'm not, 12 hours straight. See, I'm not sure. Well, he does have breaks. I'm not sure exactly the hours he worked because, you know, the power plant's about 20 miles from here. So part of that time is obviously traveling. It says about an hour of travel. Well, yeah, no, I get that. But I don't quite, I mean, I'm trying to sort of figure this out. I mean, was he, was he, was he management? Uh, no, he's just a, you know, laborer, basically. So he was unionized. Um, I think so. I mean, it is Scotland. <laughs> They're no yeah. stranger to unions, right? So he was unionized, and how on earth... I mean, if you're working, you know, 12 hours, um, five days a week, I mean, that's crazy. That's like 60 hours a week. That's massive uh, overtime. So, I mean, is, wouldn't that get you more money than you could possibly use? Well, um. Uh how it worked with the shifts was um, he actually worked six days a week, um, Monday to Saturday. He got every Sunday off, and he did that for two weeks. And then you get two weeks off at half pay, and you're back on for two weeks. It's that sort of rotation. Oh, so you're misleading me. Sorry, no, I, I, I forgot about that. I didn't mean to mislead you. So. No, no, that's, that's, that's important. I mean, yeah, maybe no. you were misleading yourself first. But when you give me this excuse, like, well, I don't know, my dad was working 60 hours. Oh, well, except for the two weeks that he had off. Yeah, sorry, no, I forgot about that. Well, okay, so you just made up this giant excuse, right? Like, my poor dad, right. I never knew, I never had a chance to talk to him about it because he was only at home two weeks out of every four. Yeah. So let's not do that, right? Let's yeah, not do this do excuse that. machine, right? No, I know, I know, but I just need to be, because it's happened a bunch, right? Uh. I just need to be, remind you that we don't want to do that, right? Yeah. Because... Um, that just makes the conversation unnecessarily difficult. So, and but this is important as to why I think you have the otherworldly beliefs as far as a soul goes. 
So how so you basically didn't have a conversation or know much about how your father dealt with it. You said that they were upset about it, but you said you didn't know much about how your father was dealing with it or managing it, right? Okay, so that would be, I think, again, here we have a pretty important conversation to have about your life. I mean, you're bullied for 13 years, right? Yeah. And you didn't have much of a solid conversation about it with your father, is that right? Not really, no. Well, what does not really mean? Like, um, sorry, I say that when I'm not too sure about things. Um, I'm sure I did talk to my parents about bullying, but... No, you would remember it. Like you remembered your dad coming in when you were seven. The more unusual a conversation is, the, and the more powerful and unusual it is, the more we remember it. Sorry, it's just, I it's mean, just hard. I'll give you, I'll give you, give you a tiny example, right? So when I was, uh, uh, I, I was sent to summer camp for like good chunks of the summer. Uh, it was like one of these heavily subsidized uh, summer camps when I was in my sort of early to mid-teens. Yay, Camp Bolton! I actually went back there for a photo shoot because photo shoot, I was so pretty. But um, uh, I was uh, – and, and there was a, a counselor there, like a, a – not a, a psychological counselor, but just a camp counselor, right? And, you know, he and I really hit it off. And he actually was one of the few people I remember as a child who would talk to you like you were a human being, Right? I mean, so many people talk to kids like the kids are just, uh, you know, you've got to put on a show or you've got to entertain them or you've got to be goofy or you know, nonstop joke machine. But just talking to kids like, hey, how was your day? Or, you know, talking to them like they're just normal human beings <laughs> seems to be beyond the, you know, it's, it's like when you see some nervous liberal overly pandering to some black person on a show. You're so brilliant. Rachel Maddow does this all the time. But um, uh, it, it's just, you know, just talk to blacks like they're <laughs> human beings and uh, everything would be fine. And, um, uh, and uh, one night he and I were sitting, uh, I couldn't sleep cause you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a night owl. My daughter the other night couldn't get to sleep. She's like, well, dad, I'm half you and your genes seem to keep you up. So I'm sure the same thing's happening with me. I'm like, Ooh, I think I've been educating you too much. But, um, so, but this guy, I didn't remember his name, but we sat outside the cabin. It got to be 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And we were just chatting and talking about things, the stars, the universe, the God. Uh, I remember he was the one who told me that, oh, you know, everyone thinks that Frankenstein is the monster, but it's not true. Frankenstein is actually the doctor who created him. Uh, and I actually ended up reproducing this scene in my novel, The God of Atheists, although it was between two girls having a sleepover. But that, I mean, that was just like, a, and so that was unusual insofar as an adult was talking to me like I was a normal human being. It was so unusual, I remember vast details of the conversation almost four de decades later. And most of the topics that I reproduced in my novel were topics that <laughs> we, uh, we talked about that night. And uh, just a, a great guy, you know. If you're ever out there and you ever listen to this, I don't know, four decades on, yeah, I'd be in his 60s. Thank you. <laughs> that was a... Uh, and I also had one teacher who was pretty good when I was in grade six, Greenland Public School, and uh, he actually talked about things like they made sense. Like I remember we did, um, we were talking about the Eloy in H.G. Uh, um, Wells' The Time Machine, and I remember him saying, you know, they, they get focused on something, and then they just see something shiny over there, and suddenly they're distracted, and he actually, you know, like he was trying to help us relate to it because we could all relate to that. We were like 11 or 12 years old, 11 years old at the time. 
and um, just a guy who vaguely brought things to life and made an attempt to connect with the kids. And, and so I don't want to lecture you about my, my sort of experience, but if you, you know, this was the central driving issue of your life. I mean, seriously, Colin, was there ever a time, at least Monday to Friday, when the, the, the fact that you were bullied ever left your mind completely? Um, no, I wouldn't say that, no. Because <laughs> it was always an aspect. No, it was life. constant. It was a constant, yeah. like, it was a constant experience, right? And, and constant experiences occur because they never get closure, because they're not talked about, they're not talked out. No, honestly, I didn't really talk about my bullying. No, sorry, not didn't really. I didn't talk about my bullying. Um, I do remember that every time, sorry, I do remember my parents talking to me that about the fact that every time they asked me, you know, how did school go, I'd only ever tell them it went fine. You know, they actually had to pressure me to admit that I was being bullied so relentlessly. And Now, why? Why? The question is why? You're clo- you said you were close to your mother. And you have a constant experience called being bullied, which is like a dimmer switch that doesn't turn off, right? There's times when it goes down, but it never goes off. So for 13 years, you have a constant experience that you're not sharing with your mother, and you don't know if she believes in a deity, and you never talk to her about your own religious change. Help me understand, Colin, how that can be put under the definition of we were close. I guess it doesn't fall on that hair then. Why didn't you tell them about it? I'm not saying you should have or shouldn't have. I don't, that, sorry, that's... Why the hell didn't you... I, I don't mean it yeah. like that. I'm just... No, I know what you mean. Why... Yeah, why didn't you tell them? It's hard to recollect my reasons at the time. I, I think I was scared. Maybe nervous about what would happen if I did tell. You know, scared that it would get worse if I told people it was happening. Because that's how it worked in school, you know, I got bullied and then I'd, you know, tell the teachers and then that would just make the bullying worse. Uh, and that was just, I guess, how I felt would happen if I told people about stuff like that. Right. Well, I can give you two answers that I think are relevant. I'm not saying they're definitive, but the first answer is it's not your job to tell them, it's their job to find out. Yeah. Uh, it's their job to find out. I mean, I, can, I mean, I, I, I can't even think of it. But if I, I, if you come home having been almost choked out by some psychotic kids in daycare, toddlers, really. Mm. I mean, t- tell me you came home that day, the same kid who left. I don't remember anything else about that day. That's the only memory I have right. of that entire day. And oh. that's that's important. That's important because when you were a kid. You put out distress signals, and you see if they're picked up. That's how kids work. Yeah. You put out distress signals. I remember doing this as a kid. I'm sure everyone who's listening to this, you think back to when you were upset as a kid. You put out distress signals, and then you see who picks it up and who pursues it to find out what the problem is. And... If no one picks it up, you keep your sorrows to yourself. Because you, you're trying to figure out if your emotional existence is a burden to your parents. Kids never, ever want to be a burden to their parents. For biological reasons, right? Kids that were too much of a burden 
to their parents. Well, those genes didn't tend to last very long in the gene pool during the evolution of our species for the past couple hundred thousand years, right? And so kids, they say, okay, uh, I'm having a negative experience. Is this going to be perceived by my parents as a burden or something they desperately want to fix. Well, the way that I'm going to do it is I'm going to put out that I'm unhappy. I'm not going to do it necessarily explicitly, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to come home. I'm going to be subdued. I'm going to be quiet. But I, I know when my daughter's upset. I can see it from across a field, and I won't stop until I find out what the problem is. And uh, so, and that, because I, I know that that's the case, that kids don't come up and tell you that they're upset. Kids will signal distress and see if you... Uh, are interested enough to pursue and, and, and do it. And, and then, through that process, kids will then start to open up with you and tell you what the problem is. But you have to earn that trust by first reading that signals that they're upset and then finding out what the issue is. And then after you've done that 10 or 20 or 30 times, they will start to open up to you, but they won't before. And there's very, very clear biological survival reasons as to why that is the case. Because they don't want to be a burden. They don't want to be the one kid out of 12 who's always whining and complaining. Because that will not get them the parental attention or maybe even resources to survive that they need for those genes to be passed on. At the same time, they don't want to keep everything inside. Because if they are in an environment where parents actively and proactively try to figure out what's wrong with their kids, they don't want to be short of those resources either, right? So, you know, we, we, put, out the, we put out the flares and see if any helicopters come to land, so to speak. We put out the SOS and see if any planes fly overhead. That's how kids work. So you put out your distress signals. And you got the pretty clear, though probably unconscious, message that... If you have troubles, your parents don't want to know because maybe they don't know how to handle it. Maybe they, don't, maybe they find it inconvenient. Maybe it stresses them out too much. Maybe it brings up childhood pain of theirs that was unresolved. But whatever the reason, we, we, can't, we, can't, we don't do that. We can't deal with that. We won't pursue that. Yeah. Does that make any sense? It makes perfect sense, yeah. Right. I've just always and had so sorry. no sorry Colin go ahead sorry I've just always had trouble um, divulging how I feel to people um, I'm not sure why uh, it's something I've always wondered uh, but it's a genuine tr problem I have even with my own parents even now I'm a 22 year old guy and closer to my dad than I ever have been we talk about you know we have deep conversations we talk about a lot of things but I just can't seem to tell anyone how I feel, really. Right. Well, if you have a son in the future, I don't think he will be, but if you have a son who is bullied, would you want to know? Of course, yeah. And if he was bullied in the school and the school didn't do anything about it, what would you do? Probably take him out of the school. <laughs> and if he went to another school and was bullied there as well? Well, I mean, I want a homeschool, so... Um, right. Yeah. So you would do whatever it takes to keep keep your child in a safe environment. Yeah. Right. Now, your parents weren't that way, I assume. No, no. I mean, if you had gone to them and you'd have said, I, 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 I think I'd rather like throw myself in front of a bus than go to school today. And I'm sure it felt that way sometimes. Yeah. I think they would have basically said, 
what what would they have said? Um, they'd have they'd have complete understanding for it. Um, but I never actually said that. You know, I never. So why why would you deny yourself that great understanding if it was there? I can't give you the answer for that, Stefan. I'm sorry. Um, just uh, I don't know. <laughs> right. Well, I'm not sure that the great understanding would have been there because they already knew you were being bullied, right? Hmm. They did move me to a different school. Uh, when the bullying restarted again, right? Not like you know a fraction of the extent it did the last school. Um, right. Like yeah, I mean there was bullying, but like it was like petty name calling. There wasn't really any violence. Um, directed towards me and I've never really cared about names you know call me what you want right. <laughs> so that never really bothered right. me I think that's a British Isles thing that's kind of incomprehensible to others but anyway yeah we um, call our friends so <laughs> yeah um, and have you talked with your father um, uh, about any of the bullying stuff in your experiences um not recently, no. Um, when was the last time you did? Oh God, <laughs> that's. Well, you said not recently, so yeah, you've got yeah, a time no, frame like, in your mind, yeah, unless uh, you're fogging me again. No, I know which it's is not, fine. I, know I just it's not need recently. to know. Right? I'm just trying to think of when it was. Oh, sorry. Uh, probably about ten years ago now, just before I went into academy. I was just, you know, talking to him about how scared I was about fact that there's going to be a lot older kids there right. um, he was quick to reassure me that um, in academy especially because it was a good secondary school I was going to I was going to find you know a higher quantity of decent rational thinking human beings than these degenerates that bored me my entire life and it's true I found wait wait hang on hang on hang on hang on hang on right. hang on oh my goodness oh my goodness all right. So, your father referred to your previous schoolmates as degenerates. No, that's that's me. No, I said like as in the degenerates are the people who are doing the bullying, not any friends. Just yeah, I, I, he didn't say that. That's just me putting in descriptive words. Sorry. Well, how did he refer to your previous schoolmates? Because he said your new school, like the the boys in the academy, uh, did he say they're not going to be like the, the guys in your previous school? Um, I mean, he, he referred to bullies in general in a negative way, but, you know, anyone would. Um, he didn't specifically say anything about the people I went to school with, just recognised that there would be more good people at Academy due to the fact that there's going to be more people in general than at a small school. Where I was at. You know, as I said, the bullying wasn't too bad, but I didn't have friends because there was no one who really fitted in with... The things I like. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I mean, I'm, I'm no mathematician, but if you say, I'm scared to go to the academy, and your father says, don't worry, there'll be better people there, isn't he by implication saying that there were worse people where you came from? No, I mean, he did say that, the, well, yeah, he would say there were worse people where I came from. Right, and this indicates a knowledge of the suffering that you were experiencing, right? Because, yeah. I mean, if, if you came and said, listen, I don't want to... I don't want to go to academy. And he said, well, well, why? It's going to be exactly the same as where you came from. 
right? That would make, then he would say, well, I didn't know how bad it was where you came from. But if you say, I'm, t- I'm scared of going to the academy, and he says, well, no, there's going to be way better people there, then he's indicating that he knows that you're coming from a place where there were way worse people, right? Yeah. I mean, like, like I said, um, at the school that I was at before moving on to academy, the bullying wasn't um, something that bothered me as much because it was just petty name calling. The major problem I had right. at that point was the fact that I had no friends, no social life at all. Right. And right. that's kind of what I was getting at. When I go to academy, I would find people. And did your parents? Did your parents notice? I mean, obviously they must have noticed that you didn't have a social life. And what was their perspective on that? Um, did they have social lives? Did they have social lives? Uh, no. Though they didn't have social lives either. No. I mean, my, why do you think that was? Um, I'm not sure, honestly. I mean, my dad still doesn't have. Oh my god, man! Oh man! Oh man! <laughs> You're close to these people. But you don't know why they have no social life. No, I'm, I'm trying to think. Like, um, it's just no. But you shouldn't have to try and think. It's just. It's a I, there shouldn't that, be a real time quiz. It's just a question. Uh, I, don't, I don't think has like you know one solid answer. It could just like I mean, for my dad, for example, he was the same as me. He didn't really fit in with any of the people round about here. Uh, he actually didn't move to this town until he was sixteen, and was instantly hated by you know the major groups of people about. So he. Oh, so your dad was what bullied and ostracized as well? Well, he wasn't bullied because he's like you know quite a tough guy. He got into fights and people didn't like him, but you know he never let anyone walk over him. But yeah, his entire life here since he moved here, he's not really had a social life at all. And your mom, did she have a social life at all? She had a social life when she was younger, but um, you know once she'd married and settled down, uh, she didn't really see many people. She also um, had. An overactive thyroid, no, an underactive thyroid, which caused her to gain a lot of weight and caused a lot of pain on her, and that actually limited the amount of time she could even leave the house. Uh, so she, you know, she just wasn't um, able to have a social life. She wasn't really able to do anything. I thought you said, uh, but didn't they both work? Yeah, they worked. Um, my mum at the time, though, she only worked in a shop at the time when she had an underactive thyroid, so, you know, she didn't, she just sat at a till, and, yeah, not really anything physical. Right, right. Well, I can, I'm, I've got to move on to the next caller, but I, I'd like to leave you with some thoughts. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Uh, if, if this helps, and look, I, I really appreciate you telling me a I think you're really good at sharing <laughs> your history. I mean, I know you say that's tough. Uh, and, and it's usually tough just because most people aren't that interested or willing to listen. But I'm eternally fascinated by the turning rainbows of diamond-like human souls. So I, uh, I really appreciate you sharing this. And I don't mean to be dismissive, but I, I'd like to leave you with um, some thoughts <laughs> that I hope oh, not will be of, of some use. And then, and then you can tell me if they are of use or of not, right? Because I don't want to just speechify and have not anything land useful. But... Um, trying to organize the best way to put this. Um, the dream of reunification in the future, I think, is the mirror image of a lack of connection in the past. The dream of reunification in the future, I think, is the mirror image of a lack of connection in the past. And 
I think that if we are really connected with people, of course we're going to mourn their loss, and of course it's going to be tragic when they die, but at least we have the satisfaction of having had that connection. There is, I think, within human beings, an almost instinctive avoidance mechanism for intimacy, because intimacy leads to loss. To love is to lose. There's no way around that equation. And I think a lot of people don't want to connect with other people for fear of the pain of loss. I think they shy away from it. Uh, Also, connection requires a, a willed commitment to honesty, vulnerability, and openness in the moment. And to say, I must connect now, is to also accept I must do it now because I will die later. Anything we prioritize that is essential is an admission of mortality. If I don't connect now, I can do it later. It's going to happen later. Something's going to happen later. Something's going to come about later that's going to make it better. There's this deferral and there's this procrastination. And it comes out of a vague belief that we have forever to turn things around. We have forever to connect to people. We have forever to be vulnerable. We have forever to be honest. We have forever to genuinely share who we are with those around us because we're never going to die. Whenever we panic about our lack of connection, it is because we remember we're going to die. And particularly with our parents. Well, your father is likely, much more likely to die before you do. But you're young, and he's probably in his 40s or 40s, I think you said. He's very young when he has you. So, you know, you've got, you've got a long time. And this idea, I don't need to connect now, it'll happen later, or we'll talk about something else, or I'll avoid that I'm actually not that connected with him. We've got all the time in the world. All the time in the world. But of course, the reality, as you know from your mother, is we don't have all the time in the world. We don't have, we only here because of death. We are only here because of death. We're only alive because people die and we need new people, right? I mean, and so I think that part of your emotional drive towards this idea of eternal recurrence and the idea that we are going to meet up later is a way of avoiding the need to connect in the here and now. Like, okay, so I didn't connect too much with my mom while she was alive, but it's okay because we're going to meet again in the future. And what that does is it keeps at bay the disconnection panic that could be occurring for you with regards to your father. Like, I didn't connect with my mom the way that I really wanted to or the way that I really yearned to or the way that would have really made for a rich and deep and connected and powerful relationship. I didn't do that, but my dad's still here so I can do it with him. There's no panic about the loss of connection or the lack of connection in the past with your mother. And the way your belief system keeps that panic at bay. Because, you know, you're going to meet again. Right? That old Vera Wang 
Vera Lynn song. We'll meet again. Don't know where. Don't know when. But we'll meet again some sunny day. I think that's how it goes. And that's about death. <laughs> we'll we'll meet again. We'll 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 get it. We get a do-over, Mulligan. <laughs> right? We get a do-over. We get a do-over, and we're going to be together in the afterlife, and then we'll be connected. And I think what it does is it keeps you from doing the work to connect with the people around you because you really have, when you have an eternity, you can't make any mistakes. All mistakes result from prioritization. Because if you have an eternity, you, you have forever to fix things and therefore there's no need to prioritize anything. And my concern, I said that it comes with a cost, Colin, and my concern is that these beliefs of eternal recurrence and we're all one and we're all going to meet again in the afterlife and sit in the golden armchairs of eternity and connect uh, like a bunch of mating squids, that, my concern is that that is dissolving your prioritization and your willpower and your energy to connect in the here and now because you can always do it later. And I don't think you can do it later. I think your mother is dead. In fact, I know that she's dead and she, you're not going to meet her again. And there was great loss in her passing. And the great loss in her passing was not what you said, but what you didn't say. And most importantly, what she didn't say, since she was the parent and she defined the relationship with you. And there was great loss and mourning that great loss, that lack of connection that I see from my hour and a half of chatting with you. So, you know, take that with all the grains of salt that you want, Colin. But what I see is a lack of connection, at least as far as I would define genuine intimacy and connectedness. And you're keeping that lack of connection grieving at bay, which means that you're keeping current connections at bay. In order to avoid the necessity and responsibility of connecting with your father and other people in the here and now, you are pretending that you have an eternity in which to connect with people, and you don't. Your father's going to be dead and in the ground and you will never meet him again. And you will be dead and in the ground and no one will ever meet you again. And all of those missed opportunities will never come back to you in any way, shape or form. And I'm trying to provoke the mortality panic, which allows us to prioritize. Maybe it's because I had my cancer brush, right? But the mortality panic is really important. I have... Every day, every, every week, and you know, Mike and Stoyan can tell you how much I bore them with this, I commit to doing better. I commit to going deeper. I commit to being more expressed, more connected, speaking more about what I think, with all the caveats, because I don't want anyone to substitute my thinking for themselves. That's not thinking, right? And I'm aware that the only way I'm going to live on forever is through my child and with my wife, through my child, and through my work, through these conversations. These will be listened for as long as people have ears. Right? In, in a moment of mad grandiosity, right? I mean, um, I can't remember which one of Shakespeare's contemporaries said, Shakespeare is not for our time, he is for all time. And there's some of the stuff that I do, which is for our time, right? The news items and so on, and that's important, you know, important to get philosophy into the current events and get new listeners, but the conversations like this, I want to be as relevant in a thousand years as they are now. Because I have mortality panic. I know that I'm going to be dead. And uh, so I want to not spend the hour and a half not connecting. And 
I think that if you take away this fog of eternal recurrence, you will also face the brick wall face down, mud bath, six feet under, worms eating out your eyeballs, your thoughts never to return or recur in this plane or any other, no 12th dimension, no quantum physics home, a future golden couched heaven, heavenly connection, but it's only in the words that you feel and say and honor and hold and connect within the here and now. It is only the language you are willing to speak that defines who you connect with and whether that connection is possible. It is all up to you to initiate and to hold fast to the principles of honesty and integrity and vulnerability and openness. And there is no future where this will happen for you. There is no future where you will blend like two pillars of smoke into one another in the future, in the afterlife, or any place like that. It will never happen. It is only in the words you choose to speak in the here and now that connection can occur. It will never be automatic. It will never be a function of metaphysics. It will never be a function of where your soul drifts after death. It will only be the result of what you choose in the here and now. And I'm saying to you, Colin, that if you abandon the ideals of eternal recurrence and all consciousness is one, you have to do the work to connect. It's never going to happen for you, and it should happen now because you're going to die. Thank you for those words, Stefan. Um, you're very welcome. No, I, I, I hope that's helpful. You said there. Um, I do. It's, I'm glad I had this conversation with you because... It has opened my eyes to things I previously didn't even consider. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, and as an experiment, you know, you can just humor me. Um, that's not a great thing for a philosopher to say. Just humor me. Pretend I'm right. But but try this. Mm. Try really connecting with your father. Try really connecting with people around you. Unpack your heart. Tell them everything that's on your heart and in your mind and in your history. Because no priority should be higher than that while we are not currently starving to death. Yeah. Try that. Try really connecting with people. It certainly is not going to do you any harm. I think it would do the world of good. And see if when you're genuinely connected to people, whether your belief in the afterlife diminishes. I guarantee you, at least I, 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 I'm very sure. <laughs> I can't guarantee you. I'm very sure that it will. But it's worthwhile as an experiment. Yeah. I'll try that. Yes, of course. <laughs> All right. Will you let us know how it goes? Uh, yeah, sure. All right. Colin's dad incoming. All right. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. No and we'll talk against it. Uh, thank Take you. Bye. All right. Thanks very much. Appreciate that. As always, I hope everyone has a wonderful, wonderful week. Please drop by, if you can, freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. Oh, it's a tough economy. I know. I know. I know. And if you've got to choose between food and philosophy, well, only one of those starts with an F, and I don't believe it's philosophy, so go with the food. But if you are still gainfully employed, we certainly could use your help, and we would very much appreciate your support at freedomainradio.com slash donate. Thank you so much, everybody. Have yourself a great night.